Here's the thing though. Welcome to another episode of our podcast, Here's a Thing Though. My name is Siliha and I'm your host for today. I'm here with my producer slash editor, Mitch Price. Salut. Before we begin, we'd like to acknowledge the Darug and Kuringai people who are the traditional owners of the land that we are recording on today. We'd like to pay our respects to all First Nations people past, present and future and acknowledge that we're recording on stolen land and that sovereignty was never ceded. So Mitch, how are you? How's it going? I'm doing good. Everything is going well. The weather's okay today. I'm enjoying myself. How are you? Yeah, I'm good. I'm chilling. Uh, work has been less busy than usual lately, which has been nice for me. So it's just kind of, it's actually been, it's been nice. I honestly don't remember my week. It's just, it just doesn't exist. But that's probably a good thing, right? Because it means I have nothing to like complain about. <laughs> I guess so. Yeah. I guess so. It's just, it just be like that. It's just, you know, same shit different day kind of vibes, but nothing like particularly bad. So it's, it's all fine. It's fine. Cool. Let's get into today's follow-up before I introduce the topic. Every week we've been talking about Ozpol and the Liberal Party and how misogynistic it is. And alas, it's not over. <laughs> A lot's happened in the last week or so. I'm not going to bother going over all of it because I think at this point, a lot of people and especially women are just getting like news fatigue We're all pretty over it. None of us need to feel even more dehumanized than we are. And I totally get it. So instead, I'm just going to talk about the most recent development real quickly. Okay, in and out. In and out. Um, So Scott Morrison did another presser where he like basically talked about being uh, the woman's prime minister and how he's like going to, you know, uplift women's rights, how he's going to like change the way things are happening. He also said that he has supported... Uh, like gender quotas for quite some time now, which was very hilariously debunked by, I think it was the Sydney Morning Herald. It might have actually been Jamila Rizvi, the journalist, but somebody wrote an article that like literally quoted him like several times over the last couple of years saying how much he really despises gender quotas. So we all know it's fake PR bullshit. We didn't need it to be fact-checked, but it was fact-checked. Scotty for marketing. Scotty for marketing, for those who are interested. So he's just done a cabinet reshuffle. Um, where he's essentially going to spotlight the female perspective. So he's brought in a lot more uh, women ministers and he's... I've already forgotten her name, to be honest. I don't really care that much. But just another woman in cabinet who he's now calling the woman's prime minister and he's going to be, like, working closely with her to uplift women or whatever. Probably the key points from the cabinet reshuffle that I think are worth talking about and being concerned about... The first one is that Peter Dutton, who was Home Affairs Minister, is now Defence Minister. So Linda Reynolds, who was previously Defence Minister, she's the one who called Brittany Higgins a lying cow. Uh, She's been demoted and Peter Dutton has been promoted into her position. And for anybody who knows anything about Peter Dutton, that is obviously fucking terrifying because this man like literally has a history of terrorising brown people and now he's like got a monopoly over Australian violence. (laughs) I love that for me. Um, I'm quite concerned. Look, this is the man that in the past tried to strip citizenship off an Aboriginal person and tried to deport them to Papua New Guinea, despite like literally being a fucking First Nations person. He failed. The courts ruled in the First Nations person's favour, obviously. But like, this is the kind of heinous, racist, white supremacist man Peter Dutton is. Like, he used to be a top cop in Queensland. So we know 
everything we need to know about him. And oh, now it all makes sense. Yeah, it all makes sense. Um, and now he's a defense minister, which is just quite frankly fucking terrifying. Uh, something more. I think what a lot of you guys will be talking about is the new assistant minister for women. Uh, this is now Amanda Stoker, who is a woman, and I think a lot of like conservatives or even like kind of right-ish liberals are all like, "See, didn't you want a woman in this role? Now you have one." Because typically in the past, like the women's minister has been like Tony Abbott. <laughs> so we have like a like we have a woman now, both as the minister for women and as the assistant minister. For women, but uh, I personally don't give a fuck because this person, Amanda Stoker, is anti-abortion, anti-trans rights, anti-gay rights. Uh, she's been quoted saying that she doesn't want gay rights to come through. She's a proponent of the Religious Discrimination Bill, which is essentially the bill that would allow like Catholic schools and stuff to kick out gay kids for being gay. And she literally said that she was like... The reason that she supports that is because she's concerned that school students will start having their own, quote, gay clubs. Oh, no. <laughs> oh, no. Um, this is, like, you know, classic super right-wing, super Christian woman. She's also, like, accused other women in her political party of uh, playing the gender card. Um, and I think at some point she said something about women with children being, like, baggage to employers or something. But the point is, like, this is clearly a woman who is, like, anti-women. <laughs> um, really incredibly, like, conservative right-wing politics. It makes sense that Scott Morrison would put her in this position as a ultra-right-wing Christian person himself. Um, but I just kind of want to point that out because this is what we mean when we say that, like, not all representation is good representation and actually representation is really not where most of our politics should lie. It's nice to have representation, you know, when we talk about POC and media and stuff, but like women in leadership positions historically held by men is not liberation, guys. They're just going to oppress us the way men oppress us. This is not, this like the future is not electing a nicer woman. The future is abolishing the system that subjugates women in the first place. So I, I did want to point that out. And the last thing that I'm going to talk about with this cabinet reshuffle before I just cut it out of my mind because I don't want to think about Ospol anymore is that Linda Reynolds, the one who was defence minister and called Brittany Higgins a lying cow, is now, she's been demoted, quote unquote, uh, to the NDIS portfolio. So the woman who disbelieved a sexual assault accusation and accused the rape survivor of being a lying cow is now in charge of the well-being of disabled people who face much higher rates of sexual assault and are notoriously disbelieved when discussing trauma and struggle. Great! <laughs> um, Carly Finley, who is uh, an activist for disabled people was, and is one, I was talking about this on her Twitter and I highly recommend checking her commentary of Ospol out because she does say some really good things about like representation um, and the way that our system just completely fucks over literally anyone that's not like a cis, het, abled white man. But anyway. Is this just not ridiculous? I feel like we know all this and I'm still always just surprised by how much currency this, these conservative ideologies have on what is the main stage of Australian politics. I'm just, look, we, we talk about this every week and I'm still just a bit 
taken aback because it's, it's all just too ridiculous to be true. It definitely feels like almost like satire, like we're watching this in real time. And I feel like a lot of us are feeling this disconnect with reality where we're just watching it like we'd watch a really fucked up TV show because it's just hard to envision this is actually like our country that we live in and the government that like rules us and has monopoly over our lives. Mm. It's yeah. And I think the only option aside from like shitting yourself for your future is to just kind of laugh and look at it as an absurdity because it's a coping mechanism. I'm in the strange position of always simultaneously being what the fuck really? And also I'm not at all surprised. Mm. So it's a very strange place to be in. It's just one of those things where we know this is a thing, but it's fucking rough to actually see it be a thing. It's like when we know that, you know, statistically X, Y, Z amount of men are rapists. But then if you know someone that's a rapist, it's like still like, damn, what the fuck? Because we know it, but seeing it in real time is completely different. Mm. Um, This whole thing is just, I can't even deal with it right now. So I'm, I'm just, we're moving on. <laughs> we're moving on. I can't talk about Ospol anymore. I don't want to think about it. Um, The other thing we want to quickly mention in our follow-up is that Mitch and I went and watched Judas and the Black Messiah the other day at the cinemas and we want to talk about it because it was a really, really good movie. Really good. A little movie recommendation of the week. Uh, For those of you who haven't heard of it, it's essentially a documentary. um, I feel like documentary, I'm using the word loosely. It's it's a biography. Biography um, of the Black Panthers, but specifically like a guy who was a double agent for the FBI and the Black Panthers who sold the Black Panthers out. Um, And so he's like the protagonist, but also... It really is about the Black Panthers, I would say. Like, yeah, it's an ensemble piece. It's about, you know, Fred Hampton, the leader of the Chicago, Illinois, I guess, contingency of the Black Panthers, as well as, uh, was it William O'Neill, who eventually yes. leads to the tragic uh, betrayal of the film, and then also uh, the police who is sort of manipulating William O'Neill uh, into doing what is absolutely dreadful. And I will warn, it's not an easy watch. It's yeah. very heartbreaking Mm. Um, and especially because from the beginning you know exactly how this is all going to unfold yeah like knowing that he's a double agent and knowing that the black panthers like what happened to them and stuff you're just watching it kind of waiting for the other shoe to drop and just kind of waiting for shit to hit the fan which is like you know just fucking excruciating because you they do a really like the acting is amazing and especially what's the actor's name for fred hampton you would know oh that's daniel kalua yeah he's an incredible actor and like He's just magnetic. Like watching him on screen. Oh, so much charisma. Yeah. I just, you can't, you can't tear your eyes away from him. He's like actually like beautiful in this movie. And you're just watching him and you're just intoxicated by him. And you just know what's going to happen to him. And it's just, oh, it's so hard. Um, But it's, it's an incredible film. And I think it's really important as well because, I mean, we can talk till the cows come home about like, police and how fucked they are and how manipulative they are but i feel like this movie really kind of does a good job at portraying exactly what the point of the police is because it does a really good job of showing that the cops have and never will be about protecting the public and it has always been about maintaining white supremacy and maintaining state control over marginalized groups and i think this movie does that really well it's Actually, like, really, it's fucking radical. Like, I know the Black Panthers are obviously radical, but I feel like movies can often either try and, like, somewhat demonize that level of radical left or, like, water it down. And I don't think this does either of those things. I think it's actually quite, like, true to their history and, like, quite a wonderful way to portray the Black Panthers, which I don't think is happens super often without some kind of 
I don't know. There's always something weird that they have because they can't romanticize this. Otherwise, we'll all become fucking radical. (laughs) You know, they have generally like the ruling class and like Hollywood execs and whatever, like often kind of have stakes in not being too radical. And I I think this movie is a great pushback against that. Yeah, you typically only see it in the alternative independent cinema. But this was distributed by Warner Brothers, you know, one of the Mm. leading uh, big studios. So I feel like if you like this podcast- you will like this movie. Just brace yourselves for what is a difficult film, but a phenomenal one. Highly recommend. Highly recommend. And look, I'm the kind of person who cries and everything and I, and I managed. So it's difficult, but I think most of you will be okay watching it. But anyway, let's let's veer into today's topic. Today, we are going to discuss the ever elusive, ever controversial female gaze. I'm sure a lot of you have heard of the male gaze. I mean, it's like become a bit of a buzzword these days. It's pretty oversaturated in a lot of media conversations. Um, but kind of recently, there's been a real buzz around the female gaze, often used as, I guess, the opposite, the binary opposite of the male gaze. Now, I'm not saying that's what the female gaze is, because we'll, we'll get into that in a second. But I really enjoy conversations around the female gaze because we kind of don't really know fully what it is yet. Like there is a lot of debate. This is not like, there's no factual yes or no answer at the moment. Like everybody is still kind of figuring it out. There's no like strict literature or canon defining what the female gaze is yet, which makes it fun to talk about because everybody's going to have their own perspectives on what they think the female gaze is, or if it even exists, because that in itself is a discussion right now. Uh, But yeah, it's a, look, Predominantly, this will be about the female gaze, but in order to talk about the female gaze, we do need to talk about the male gaze first. So, uh, let's get into it. All right, the male gaze. Uh, I'm sure most of you have heard of the male gaze. I feel like when most people think of the male gaze, they think the way we sexualize women. It's typically the like what it comes down to for a lot of people, but... Uh, I'll get Mitch to give us like a good kind of in-depth discussion of what the male gaze is in a literature or academic sense because he actually like did it recently in his film studies class because mm. this is actually this is like film literature. Uh, I think a lot of people mistake it as like just feminist literature, but it is like very very specific to cinematography and film. Exactly, like the male gaze in recent years has been sort of expanded to include all this sociological research and just general discourse about feminism. But its roots are actually quite specific and are located in film theory. And specifically, the term was coined by the British film theorist Laura Mulvey in her 1975 essay called Visual Pleasure and Narrative Cinema. So when it comes to the male gaze, I'd say there's a few sort of different poles of it that we need to recognize to really understand what Mulvey is talking about, because it is a bit more specific than just generally the objectification of women and the viewing of women by the male figure. So Mulvey's theory is very much based upon psychoanalysis, which, I mean, we can have a conversation uh, in a bit about what we maybe think about psychoanalysis, but is is built upon a lot of Freud and Jacques Lacan uh, psychoanalysis. And it's sort of centered on this idea of phallocentrism. Mm. And this is, <laughs> this is important. Just I'll try and get through this as quick as I can. But phallocentrism is this idea of, I guess, society being a, built upon and our identification with ourselves being built upon the phallus almost as like the main productive entity. So thus, with women not having the phallus, they are in, in like cishet terms. In cishet terms, exactly. And I mean, we can get into that. Uh, they have 
they experience lack. They lack the phallus. And thus- yeah. <laughs> God. <laughs> Angry reacts, but go on. They lack the phallus and thus either have envy of the phallus or when men view women, they experience castration anxiety <laughs> because they represent almost- the castrated figure. God, this fucking penis envy bullshit. Yeah, I mean, Mitch knows the absolute rage I feel on this topic, but I'm, I'm going to let Mitch okay, keep talking. Okay. Keep talking, so, Mitch. <laughs> and that's sort of where I guess almost attraction comes from. It's from recognizing sexual difference. And in a way, for men, women represent unpleasure in a way because they they reinforce this anxiety of castration, which is the castration complex central to Freud. Fuck Freud. <laughs> well, Fuck we'll, Freud. We'll see, we'll see. <laughs> so, moving from this this psychoanalytical perspective, it's important to know as well that the male gaze was first discussed about in the Screen Journal, which is an academic journal for film theory. And that centers upon a Marxist psychoanalytic perspective, which suggests that the way we, we watch films through... And relate to films through identification with their main characters. We don't simply watch, but in a way, we identify with the character on screen and almost see things through their perspective. And from that, we get to the male gaze, which is about how Hollywood film often has, firstly, male characters that define the action of the film. They are the central character. So we see characters that are men always looking at female bodies. Then we also see the camera, which aligns with the gaze of the male character, either through seeing them looking or through point of view shots, which are always at women's bodies. And thus, through that identification process, us, the viewer, assumed to be the male viewer in a way, is now gazing upon the women's bodies. You know what? Like when I think of the male gaze and like particularly, and I, f- I swear most of you are going to like think the same thing. I just like the first thing that comes to mind, because it's just like, stuck to my brain is that scene in Transformers I just I think I was literally how old was I when Transformers came out very fucking young I was like a child but I like explicitly remember the scene where Megan Fox like leans over the hood of um the car to like look at it because she's all like into mechanics and stuff and despite being a super smart interesting woman the camera so disgustingly just like follows every curve of her body and it's like incredibly sexual and That was, like, many years ago, and I haven't even seen Transformers in many years, but it is so, like, imprinted in my brain as, like, what I think of when I think of the male gaze in television because it was just so absurdly sexual. Like, literally cannot look at Megan Fox without thinking of that now. I mean, that's what it is. Like, when I'm watching Transformers, I'm like, wow, Megan Fox's character is fucking cool, but everyone is just looking at her sexy little waist and her and her back. Because, of course, she's also in a crop top, mind you, leaning over the dirty, oh, greasy hood of a car. Like, no woman who is a mechanic is going to be wearing a crop top while doing that, but okay. So we can interpret the male gaze through two aven- avenues, that Mulvey. So because women with their phallus lack... Um, <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, it's just so hard to just... No, that wasn't a pun. It's just- oh, Okay. <laughs> I just can't deal with this conversation because I just like, it's so... We're we're almost done. Yeah, okay. So because women represent this unpleasure, this castration anxiety, it's important that men subvert this uh, anxiety through either two avenues, that being the voyeuristic avenue, so turning them into an object of fascination, or 
uh, we then turn women into fetish objects by over-sexualizing certain parts of the body, thus reducing the castration anxiety that they represent. So that's essentially the male gaze. It's the way that men are seen as active participants viewing women as raw material. You've obviously noticed how like cis normative, heteronormative, the whole uh, phallocentrism idea is. Like, yes, it is. This is a huge part of why this whole thing is very like misogynistic and problematic because uh, women don't lack... First of all, I mean, not every woman doesn't have a penis, first of all. That's, like, the first conversation. But even if we, like, just ignored the, like, inherent transphobia of this situation, it's also just, like, the idea of lacking. I mean, not to say that Laura Mulvey believes this. She doesn't. She's just using this as an example of, like, what the male gaze is. It's a framework. It's a framework. Yes, I feel like we have to say that she's not out here being cis and heteronormative and saying that women lack penis. That's not what she believes, but this is a framework to, like, analyse. It's what... She suggests that patriarchal society is built upon. Yeah, exactly. Which it is. I mean, this is this is essentially the misogyny that society is built upon. This is how like society, uh, like misogynistic society, like views women as like a lacking a phallus or lacking what makes a man a man under like patriarchal cis hetero society, and then also just like the inherent assumption that women are. like anxious about that that women like feel incomplete without it that women are inherently lesser not just in the eyes of men but in the eyes of ourselves uh because of our lack of phallus or whatever and it's just obviously so so rage inducing but also just like it's actually very true like it sounds really like freudian and shit because it is and i mean i can talk for fucking days about how much i hate freud but it is true that, like, these are the ideas that misogynic society is built on and that a lot of people, maybe not in these exact terms, do believe this. Like, a lot of misogynists genuinely view women as lesser for, like, not prescribing to the, the male body that they think is what allows humanness. And they also believe that we believe that we're lesser because of it. Like, this is true. I think it's also important to note that Mulvey here isn't talking extremely broadly. She's talking about Hollywood film specifically. She doesn't refer to what she calls the alternative cinema in this analysis. And it's because early Hollywood film is built upon a few specific tenets. Specifically, it is of the star system. So it's these valorized egos that we can more easily associate with on screen. And then also, it's the fact that early Hollywood film is designed in formally anyways, to be invisible. The editing is invisible. There's meant to be a seamless interaction between the events on screen and us, the spectator. There's not really meant to be a cinematic difference. Whereas a lot of alternative cinema, a lot of experimental cinema, doesn't work so seamlessly, if that makes sense. So that's why we're more able to uh, identify with the characters on screen. I also want to point out that, like, obviously this is like, this is like the literature canon of what the male gaze is. Um... But if we're gonna, like now that it's expanded, right? So this is where it started off. It started off with the very specific way Hollywood cameras um, make women out to be in the cinema as like these either really fetishized or like objectified kind of passive agents in like a male protagonist story and particularly desire. Uh, but it's kind of now expanded to just like TV and stuff in general. And I think for the most part, like we can expand that quite honestly because the male gaze does show up in like every aspect of our lives. And so, I mean, we talk about it a lot these days in TV shows because how many movies do I watch that are like very specifically Hollywood? I don't even watch that movie, that many movies to begin with. 
But like I watch a lot of TV shows, which are not Hollywood. So it's kind of really expanded that there's lots and lots of writing on like male gaze and TV shows and stuff. But something that I feel like can often disappear from just like everyday conversations like we would have on the male gaze and like especially just everyday women talking about the male gaze is we often limit it to the woman's sex object. And I think we have to remember that like it's not just about the objectification and sexualization of women, but it's also about like the objectification of like trauma of women. Like it's about just all of it, not just sex. And maybe an example to make what I'm saying clearer is like the way that women are often also brutalized in movies and TV shows for like the plot point, but like not for them or their character development or whatever. Like women are brutalized on TV so that the male protagonist can be spurred into action. Like it's this dispensability of women and the fact that we are like always, always, even even the most like traumatic things that happen to us in movies are for male character development and are for the development of like everybody else or the whole plot but not us yeah they're objects of fascination yeah a really great example of that which we talk about we've talked about previously it's just like true crime stuff or like crime shows i mean i'm watching criminal minds right now and i am very aware of this being a thing in criminal minds though despite this show being probably better to its victims than most like crime shows there is still this idea of like you know, female characters being murdered and then we focus on the trauma of the men that have to, like, deal with the situation. And it's like, boo fucking who, man? She's dead. Like, why am I more sad about you crying over her than her actually dying? But this is this is also the male gaze. It's just the inherent, like, lack of value in women. It's And, like, I mean, like we are saying before, it's the inherent idea that women are passive, that even in death, even in brutal rape and torture and whatever happens to women on screen they are still like it's still passive they're still passive they don't actually have a story they are just the background characters and other people's stories and where the male gaze originally in cinema is about the aligning of three different aspects that being the aligning of the gaze within the camera the characters and the spectator i see the male gaze being applied to you know walking down the street and feeling the presence of men always looking at you yeah. out of this cinematic or even televisual perspective. Well, I mean, even just like the male gaze is, you know, it's part of every single part of our lives, not just the movies. There's like a quote that, I mean, we've all seen it on Instagram and everywhere, so I don't know who's who it belongs to, but just about like women view themselves the way men view them. And I think that like that's a really good example of just like the male gaze permeating every part of our life is like a lot of women are not looking in the mirror and just looking at themselves they're looking in the mirror and perceiving the way they know men will look at them and perceiving themselves in like the male gaze like I'm sure most of us aren't even fully capable of actually being able to see things outside the male gaze because it's not what we're socialized for you know and this is the product of like yes as patriarchal society even like every fucking Cosmo article that you've ever read that's like five ways to get a guy to notice you and five things men love about women's bodies and I don't know whatever it is Actually, he loves it when you have curves and stretch marks. And now I'm looking at my stretch marks, not thinking, oh, I'm embarrassed, but, oh, it's they're okay now because a man could find this attractive. Like, you know, even in our own lives, we can often be passive agents just because of the inherent nature of a patriarchal society. So the male gaze is everywhere. But what would it mean to subvert that? What yes. would the alternative look like, Saliha? Okay, and this is where we start to talk about the female gaze, which is quite a controversial topic, actually, because not a lot of people believe that it even exists. Uh, I am on the fence with the female gaze, and I'll get into that in a second. 
but maybe just to contextualize like this conversation that we're having part of the reason I want to talk about the female gaze today is because I'm actually seeing a lot of TikToks talking about the female gaze right now which I know is kind of random but TikToks tend to like show what everybody is talking about. I feel like every time there's a topical conversation, I see it on TikTok. And I'm seeing a lot of young women, particularly teenage girls on TikTok, like really talking about the female gaze and being interested in it and exploring it, which I think is really cool and really beautiful because even just like five to 10 years ago, like teenage girls, including me, were mostly talking about things in the male gaze. Like just talking about the way we're perceived in the male gaze. Like we, I was not this work as a teenager, so it's really nice to see teenage girls like talking about the female gaze. I love it, and I wanted to get into that today because I'm not sure I agree with everything I see about the female gaze. So I guess to start it off, I'll point out that the female gaze, unlike the male gaze, does not have this canonical literature behind it. It like the female gaze as a term uh, came out in response to the male gaze because. Uh, Mulvey doesn't really talk about the female gaze or an alternative to male gaze in her work for obvious reasons. I mean, like that's not what she was talking about. And also we can argue that it doesn't even exist. But in response to that, a lot of feminists started using the female gaze. But the female gaze doesn't have a real definition. Often there's more definitions of what the female gaze isn't than what it is. Does that make sense? Like its definition often relies on excluding things, not including things. And so it's kind of a relatively new concept. There's lots of really differing opinions on whether it exists or not or what it is or what it isn't. Uh, There's a Vulture article that I'll list in our source list um, that interviews a lot of female cinematographers, which make up like a very small minority of cinematography it's actually from what i was reading today it's like one of the least gender equal fields i mean it's why the term cameraman has persisted for so long like they're just we don't even have a gender neutral term for that because there's so few women in cinematography um but yeah that article essentially interviews a bunch of them and asks them if they believe in the female gaze and if so what do they think it is and there are you know a myriad of answers and these are from women like in cinematography like if anybody has the authority to have this discussion it's them Uh, And the answers range from, yes, the female gaze exists, it's empathy, it's intimacy, it's personifying rather than objectifying, it's getting to know characters. uh, One cinematographer talks about how in her cinematography, she believes in the female gaze, she believes it's like quite close up, intimate shots. And she talks about how a lot of male cinematographers will often have camera angles like over the shoulder and hers is often like up in the face. And she like, she talks about her style and how she thinks this is what the female gaze is. Uh, Then there's others saying that it doesn't exist. It's impossible for it to exist because like, can we really, really truly escape the male gaze? Like, is it possible? And then there are other arguments about like, does it matter if it exists, if it still reinforces a gender binary? Like, are we really going to limit gazes to the male and the female? Like, surely there are so many different ways for gazes to exist. Like, especially when we have gender diverse ways of viewing things. Like, is it just male and female? This whole conversation seems limited. Do I have the Mitch gaze? Do you have the Sleeha gaze? Like, are there, can we broadly, I guess, compartmentalize these different gazes? Yeah. You know? So there's like, you know, really, really conflicting ideas around the female gaze. I mean, I personally really agree with the criticisms of like a gender binary um, with the female gaze. Like, is this a female gaze or is it just a non-male gaze? Because I don't know if there is like a female or like woman specific gaze or if it's just a gaze that differs to the straight, cis, het, white male gaze. And there could be like a myriad of different gazes that we have kind of boxed up as the female gaze because we still like as a society, especially with liberal feminism, we're still talking about a gender binary when in reality it's probably male gaze, 
everything else gays. Also, I feel like the male gaze only has currency because it does articulate the power imbalance, which is still permeating in our society. So, it's important not to see the male, the female gaze as just like the inverse of that, because then we're still talking about these power imbalances. Yeah, exactly. And I mean, I'm also privy to the idea of like, can the female gaze even exist in a patriarchal society? Because I'm not sure if we can genuinely conceive of existing outside of the male gaze if it's something we've never actually experienced like none of us know what it feels like to exist outside the male gaze we're spending especially as feminists we're spending our whole lives unlearning the patriarchy unlearning internalized misogyny unlearning our own self-objectification like this is a lifelong process that we will not have even 100 succeeded at death like i don't know how possible it is in a society where we don't know anything else you know, I think in a radical, different society that was structured in a different way, there would be some people that have never experienced the male gaze and that would be an authentic experience. But I don't know if we can really do that or if we're really capable of doing that, but I am open to it. I think maybe I don't believe in like a very, very specific female gaze, but I believe in like an alternative gaze that kind of we're just starting to explore that is like being pioneered that's kind of new that we don't fully understand like I'm open to something else but I would I would argue that just like a subversive female gaze is not worth talking about yeah I believe it because there's definitely a gaze that we're seeing which is difficult to articulate that doesn't fall into this framework which yeah. I think is really interesting I'm keen to get yeah, into it but here. whether or not it's the female gaze it's perhaps a different story, especially because, like, if we just talk about what other people think the female gaze is, like, just, like, everyday people like you and I, like, if people that I would randomly talk to at uni and stuff, people seem to see it as, like, the opposite of the male gaze, which is my first issue. Um, like, one thing that I don't know why so many people online seem to think because it's just like oh the opposite so we're just sexualizing men instead of sexualizing women and i'm like i don't think that's what the female gaze is if it exists because i don't think women really sexualize men the same way that men sexualize women like we just don't do that um there was a tiktok that i was watching that kind of blew my mind and it was really good and it was just this girl saying that she like heard someone say women don't objectify men they personify them and i just think that is so fucking true i talked about this um, in a different podcast episode, the one that I guested on with Flex Mommy on her semi-factual history lessons, where we talked about like the snap judgments that we make on women and men, and we tend to make harsh judgments on women about their lives. Whereas I see a guy in a cardigan, and I'm like, he's probably a nice guy, and I actually probably humanize men more than they deserve, <laughs> where because like just by virtue of like not being like a cishet white man, I have more empathy. And we're hypercritical of women, yeah. as well. And I mean that sort of turns into what Mulvey's talking about with the male gaze, how we sort of, we cut them up, we fragment them and sort of hypersexualize or hyper-interrogate certain parts. Whereas I think women just aren't capable of doing that to men for the most part because that's just not how we're socialized. Like, I don't think it's an, in an inherently women can't do this, but I just mean, like, we're just not socialized that way. Like, if you're a woman in Western society and you, like, grow up being socialized to be empathetic and to be sympathetic and to care about your peers in a way that men are not socialized to do, then quite naturally, you probably give men benefit of the doubt more than men would ever give you benefit of the doubt. And so when it comes to, like, reversing the male gaze or subversing it into the female gaze where it's just the opposite of the male gaze where we just sexualize men but make females the protagonist i think that's like so limiting and such a reductionist way 
to approach this topic because women are far more complex than that. It's actually like a little bit insulting for people to talk about the female gaze as just that because I think that the way women view the world and view men is far more complex and inevitably impacted by the patriarchy. The patriarchy does not allow us, but the patriarchy and capitalism and white supremacy does not really allow us uh, to be able to objectify men in the way they object- objectify us. And also there's just like a liberal feminist idea as well of like sex empowerment and the female gaze, which I also really disagree with. I'm seeing a lot of articles from what I've been reading about liberal feminists thinking that the female gaze is like directly related to the unapologetically sexual woman. Um, so an example from like an article I was reading that was all like, oh, like check out this art made in the female gaze. And the first one was like really graphic, uh, like poppy kind of paintings of like sex so women having sex women masturbating um like just really sexual images and that is like female empowerment for those women obviously like for a lot of women sex is really empowering and being able to be unapologetically sexy and being able to just like paint your sexy images and not give a fuck about what men think of them but just do it because you think it's sexy it's empowering but i don't think it's the female gaze And the reason I don't think it's the female gaze is because the inherent sexual nature of women is still a patriarchal thing. Because while you find that image empowering, men are still jacking off to it. Like whether you find images of sexy women empowering means nothing to men who are still like also finding it sexy and still objectifying us. It's not quite the same thing. Like it's empowering and it's feminist, but I don't think it's the female gaze. Because if if the female gaze exists... I believe that it wouldn't be about sex because every other thing about us is about sex. We're sexualized in every capacity of our lives. I feel like women don't sexualize each other as much as everything else sexualizes us. And that's why I don't think sex would be so integral, like graphic sex would be so integral to the female gaze. Yeah, I almost think in a way it may articulate sex by describing everything around it. Yes, exactly. I think, and this is what I was saying too much earlier, like if I had to kind of, narrow down what I believe the female gaze is. I think it's about the intimacy of these relationships without the sex. Like, yes, sex exists in the female gaze, but it's not the focus of the female gaze. A really good example, I think, of what I believe the female gaze is, and probably the only thing that really makes me believe that it could be a thing, is the movie um, Portrait of a Lady on Fire. Really, really beautiful film. I watched it with Mitch a while ago. And I think like that is the first time I watched something and I thought, I'm seeing something right now that is that is different. Like this, maybe the female gaze exists because prior to that I was a disbeliever in the female gaze. But now I'm like, this movie has kind of changed my perception on the way women can be shown on screen and in media. And maybe the female gaze is real. So maybe maybe we can go on a side thing and talk about that movie Our case study. Our case study for today. So Portrait of a Lady on Fire is a French film. Uh, It's about a woman called Eloise who is betrothed to an Italian guy that she does not want to marry. And she refuses to do portraits, like wedding portraits, because she's really angry about the situation. And so her mother, the Contessa, hires Marianne, an independent painter, to come over, pretend to be Eloise's friend, go on these long walks with her and study her and then paint the portrait in secret. Um, but eventually, like, you know, it, this is a lesbian romance. So they, they fall in love and it's kind of just about them and another woman who is a character in the movie as well and just, like, their relationship. And, like, it's just it just studies them. It's really, really beautiful film, like, visually. Um, 
just even the storyline, the acting is incredible, like all of it. I mean, it won like a couple of awards at, at Cannes, I think. Yeah, I think it won Best Screenplay and The Queer Palm yeah. at the Cannes Film Festival, which, I mean, not to brag or anything. <laughs> Here it comes. But yeah, I did see this film in May of 2019 at the Cannes Film Festival. And my memory of it is just leaving the cinema and walking it down, walking through the city, just crying. Yeah. Because the ending is just the best thing I've ever seen. Um, Anyways. It's, it's really incredible. If you have, I imagine a few of you have seen it, but if you haven't seen it, definitely watch it. But this this movie to me is like what the female gaze is. Um, the director Celine Siama, she like made this movie in like an exploration of the female gaze. Um, like she is a feminist and wants to like really explore women and the depiction of women and the female gaze and stuff. She's done other movies that like have similar ideas, um, and so that's what this movie was about. And so this movie is like very explicitly um, trying to exist in the female gaze. Uh, which I think it does well, and I think it succeeds. And I think there's a few things we can learn from it to help us articulate what the gaze could be. Yeah, because I think one of the most obvious things that kind of show the female gaze in this movie is its lack of, like, totally sexualizing its women characters. I mean, we know that lesbian stories and lesbian romances uh, in, like, movies and TV shows are historically usually made in the male gaze and are just, like, porn for straight men. Like, I mean, Blue is the Warmest Colour is a really good example of just, like, women being ex- and their sexuality being exploited for male viewers. I mean, there's, like, a very infamous six-minute sec- uh, six sex scene in Blue is the Warmest Colour that, like, the actors then afterwards said they felt, like, really degraded doing and they described it as just being, like, quote, prostitutes, um, or just feeling like just feeling icky and gross. And then Blue is the Warmest Colour is based on a book of the same name. And the author of the book, in reviewing the movie, essentially said, Blue is the Warmest Colour is missing one thing, lesbians. Like, it's just a male fantasy of what lesbians... They, like, what, of what men think lesbians exactly, are. Yeah. It's really... It, it very much exists in the male gaze. Look, I do really like the film, but the sex scenes are entirely just softcore porn and you can really feel the masturbatory presence of the director and it does feel it's so icky. icky. It's gross, right? And so, I mean, when the director of this film was asked about it, she said, I didn't give a fuck. I didn't give a fuck about that movie. Like, don't even talk to me about that movie. <laughs> <laughs> Fair enough. Fair enough. Yeah, so she's like... She's really... She's really committed to, like, genuine genuine storytelling around women and the portrait of a lady on fire does a lot of amazing things with the female gaze so like i said the first one is the lack of like really graphic lesbian sex scene there isn't one but something that's really incredible to me is like the beauty and the eroticism and the sexual nature of this movie is in the lack of those things like by not having a sex scene i feel like just the conversations are so like charged there is so much sexual tension without you ever seeing the sex and i think that is like that is the female gaze because I think for a lot of women that's what we're interested in. I don't give a fuck about like the nasty details in movies because I we see ourselves getting pornographied literally everywhere. This film is about the lead up to that. It's just about the witty like banter. It's about the lingering looks, the little hand touches, the eye contact, the literal the literal female gaze of the actors as they watch each other. And I mean, like we were saying in the plot summary, like the protagonist, Marianne, like her job is to look at Eloise, have all these stolen little glances and then and then paint her in secret. And she just has to like rely on her memories to paint Eloise. And so there are like these examples of 
Marianne looking at Eloise's hand. Like, that's a big part. He's trying to paint her hands. She's really struggling to get the hands right. So she's always looking at Eloise's hands, maybe at her collarbone, maybe at her neck, maybe at her jawline. Um, Eloise, like, the actress for her, has, like, this really distinctive face um, and, like, these, like, thick brows and these, like, smile lines. And there's just something so distinct and, like, intense. There's an intensity to her, which, like, they acknowledge in the film in a few conversations between the characters. And it's just... This is what I think is the female gaze, like the sensuality and the intimacy in non-sexual touches, you know, in things like touching hands, in things like eye contact and like brushing up against each other. It's just, I don't know, I really believe the female gaze is about the eyes and the hands rather than, you know, tits and ass like most men believe because it doesn't remove sex from this narrative. Like these women are still like sexy women enjoying sexy times. And when we do see them... Naked, uh, in shots we'll see exposed underarm hair, which just goes completely against yes. you know, this male perception of what the ideal the like childlike form. hairless yeah. body of the woman. That yeah, ex- I remember because I remember watching that with Mitch, and I remember saying afterwards like, if it wasn't for the armpit hair, this would be just like a self gratuitous like sexy naked woman moment. But by like having armpit hair in that scene. It was a bit of a fuck you to yeah. any men that want to watch this and get off on it. Exactly. Um, which felt like really good because I don't care about the armpit hair. Like I'm very aware that women have armpit hair, <laughs> that a lot of men like to watch these scenes and pretend that women actually just look like Hollywood stars 24-7. I feel like it's really... And you know what? This movie explores other themes like abortion and female solidarity and female friendship and just all the ways... Like it really doesn't shy away from things that would be so uncomfortable for male viewers that women viewers probably don't care as much about like the armpit hair like abortion um there's a scene where somebody is getting an abortion and there is like a baby next to her the child of the woman helping her have an abortion and it's like this really jarring moment of like there's like a baby holding her finger as she's getting an abortion it's like a weird i guess juxtaposition of like ending a pregnancy but then like the result of a pregnancy next to her but I think in a way it's so beautiful and powerful because like, yeah, I mean, the woman helping her have an abortion also has kids. And like, yeah, the kid is on the bed with her because where are you going to put the kid on the floor? Like, it's just like, it's just the matter of factness of like a lot of women, especially in this time period, because this movie is set in the 18th century. Like children were just a part of women's lives and around them while they did their thing. And it's like children don't negate from a woman's story because I feel like often in media for a woman to have a story, she can't have kids. And that kids are often seen as like a burden or a baggage or like, you know, a woman's story is over when she has children. And in this movie, children are just around while women do things that women do. And I think that's actually quite radical in its own way to me. So yeah, just going back to like watching the female gaze through the way Marianne looks and observes um, Eloise so she can paint her like the hands the eyes the brows their intimate conversations caring about each other and also a part that i find quite cheeky from like the director is at some point like marianne comments on like needing to look at eloise to paint her and eloise is like well if you look at me who do i look at which is like you know a bit of a break in the fourth wall moment of like the female gaze which i really like um but i guess yeah like if i want to summarize like that's the female gaze it's intimacy without sex it's seeing somebody rather than looking at somebody because they're not the same thing it's empathizing with people not objectifying them it's like having a woman come with the sex not just like a sex that happens to be involved like a woman it's like the sex comes first and then the woman whereas the female gaze is like it's about the woman and sex might be a part of her life but it's not her life 
Yeah, I agree completely. I think the male gaze consumes while the female gaze engages with mm. in a way. And I think that is so key with sort of what becomes the subtextual backbone of the film, which is this whole idea of art and of painting. Painting is a sort of slow and contemplative process. And unlike photos, which are instant and objective in a way, paintings are rarely a one-to-one uh, interpretation of reality. In fact, painting and art informs us of the way that an artist approaches the world, the way they see things. And in this film, the work of art and the process of art sort of lets us see the way that they see each other. And we actually see as they make, as she keeps painting throughout the film and, and repaints, we see that she gets to know her subject better. So where maybe you can almost talk about the male gaze as being uh, like photographic, whereas mm. the female gaze is painterly because it requires that slow, contemplative, mm, it, thoughtful process. It, rep- it requires like getting to know your subject. Yeah. I mean, even in the movie, like prior to Marianne coming on, they had like male painters and the male painters could just never get it right. And then Marianne's the first one to be able to like actually get a good painting of Eloise on because she's the only one that actually gets to know Eloise because she's a woman mm. and Eloise is a woman and they can bond over that so it's actually yeah it's it's just like the perfect thing to like watch if you want to understand the female gaze I'm going to bring this back a little bit though because while I like this movie kind of makes me believe in the female gaze but I have my my still some doubts around it uh because I think that this is like probably what the female gaze is, but I don't know if the correct term is the female gaze. There's a quote from an article that I'm going to read you for a sec that I think kind of maybe brings me back to what where I really stand on this issue. Uh, I'll link this article as well. It says, Although women have usually taken center stage in Siyama's modern-day films, Portrait of a Lady on Fire imagines a torn page in female history, a historical moment and setting when men are entirely in the margins. In the film, men are cast aside, seen only rarely, although their influence may be felt. So yeah, you, you almost never see a man in the film and when you do, it's really jarring because you're like, men exist, I forgot about them. But what is interesting to me about this quote is like, while we don't see men, while they're not around, their influence is really felt because ever looming in the background is Eloise's engagement and stuff like that. But this is kind of reflective of like the female gaze too because I think we're onto something with the female gaze and I think this movie is onto something with the female gaze. But also, like, the male gaze still exists independently of the female gaze. And I think it's always kind of on the periphery. It's always in the edges. I don't think we can just have a female gaze that exists outside of the male gaze. Because we can feel the male gaze's impacts even in its absence. I'm not sure if, like, the female gaze can exist independently or outside of it 100% when we don't know what that's like. And we've never experienced it. Like, we wouldn't even be able to identify that. I'm going to end this with some very interesting criticism of the female gaze. There's actually been some conversation around the whitewashing of it, like the liberal feminism of the female gaze. In an article titled, No Such Thing Not Yet, Questioning Television Female Gaze, Caitlin Benson-Allett discusses like the lack of representation of like mar- marginalised groups in the female gaze. She particularly kind of talks about like how the female gaze is usually a white discussion, like it's white women. The female gaze represents the gaze of white women specifically, and it lacks like class and race intersections. I'm going to read you just like her abstract because I'll just sum it up and I'll, and I'll link her work as well. So if anybody wants to read it, they can read it. Uh, but here's the abstract. These current series, I Love Dick, Glow and Insecure, all explore how women empower themselves through experiences of abjection, states of vexation and alienation that disrupt their expectations of or participation in social life. 
all three shows demand respect for their characters by figuring defeat, failure, and desperation as stages women must pass through to challenge patriarchal cultures. While all three shows feature diverse casts and strong female leads, I Love Dick and Glow introduce characters of colour only in supporting roles that contest but never destabilise the white protagonist's racial solipsism. This strategic but facile gesture reveals how far these shows have to go to confront the entangled injustices of social inequality. To incorporate the experiences and insights of women of colour meaningfully, their creators would have to abandon the narrative, commitments and familiar pleasures of white feminist television, which still needs to decenter whiteness both narratively and figuratively. Insecure's trenchant comedy thus provides a model for future feminist television. Its self-critical but anti-racist humour challenges white feminism and television's historic neglect of black women. That's the abstract. Obviously sounds super interesting, but I think... Like, this is probably also another reason why I'm not... I'm, I'm maybe, like, 75 to 80% sold on the female gaze, but until it decenters like, rich-slash-middle-class white women as the female gaze and it expands to include other women or, like, gender-diverse people, then it's not going to be super valuable to me. Before we get into our usual outro, just have a couple of announcements to make. Uh, the first one is we'll actually be taking next week off. So there will be no podcast episode next week. We are taking a break, trying to deal with some burnout. And we're going to go on a nice little trip with some of our friends. So there will be no episode next week. Um, the second announcement is that after that week, uh, Ramadan will have started, which we will be participating in. And so I think we I will confirm once we've decided what we fully want to do. But I think we may shorten our episodes for the four weeks of Ramadan because it's kind of hard to do a long podcast episode and talk for that long and like record and stuff when you're fasting. Um, I will let you guys know though, but I'm thinking we'll probably shorten them to like 30 minute episodes. Uh, and if we do that, fear not patrons, we will charge you every second week instead of every week for those episodes. So don't worry. But yes, ceasing announcement now. Cool. Well, I think now is a good time to talk about our sponsors for the episode, which is those lovely patrons you just mentioned. Uh, specifically, we'd like to thank Pia, Beck, Naya, Rachel, Sarah, Liz, Belle, and Katie. So thank you. If you thought our discussion today was interesting, thought-provoking, or something you learned from, please consider donating to our Patreon at patreon.com forward slash Saliha. If signing up isn't your thing, you can also donate to our PayPal link at paypal.me forward slash Saliha to support future episodes. Both the PayPal and Patreon links are in my Instagram bio, so check them out over there at Saliha Official. And give me a follow if you liked today's episode. And follow my Instagram at mitches.miscellanea for discussions around film, books, and music. Also, if you have any comments or suggestions or you want to add to the discussion, you can DM me or email us at podcast at gmail.com. And please include your name, pronouns, and any other important info. And of course, remember to follow and subscribe. It really helps the podcast get out there. Cool. Bye. Bye. Bye.